0: Your audience know who you're talking to. Be comfortable with the fact that you're going to exclude some people. I mean, there'll be some people who don't care about your story, who think it's boring, who think it's lame, who think it's terrible, who think it's irrelevant. So if you, if you have those three pieces in place, it really helps you direct which stories you're going to tell, how you're going to tell them.
1: Welcome back to another edition of Inside Asia, conversations with Asia's leading movers, shakers, thinkers, and provocateurs. That was the voice of Neil Bearden, INSEAD professor, investor, decision scientist, and children's book author. Neil is many things, but above all others, he's a storyteller. I first caught a glimpse of Neil during a pitch event where nervous grad students were each given 12 minutes to present an idea, followed by a round of professional feedback. It was like an episode of Shark Tank without the callousness. Neil was among the three business school professors selected to judge the event. When the MC for the evening introduced him as, quote, our resident storyteller, I knew we had to meet. Fast forward two weeks, and I find myself stepping over an impressive array of kettlebells, free weights, and crash mats, and into his zen-like apartment in central Singapore. Everything Neil does is accompanied by calm confidence, whether working out, playing an instrument, crafting a story, or writing a poem. He has the kind of disciplined clarity reserved for Jedi warriors. It was a classroom epiphany some years ago that in part led Neil to evolve into the person he is today. I started off by asking him to share the experience and his awakening to the power of story.
0: I began my life teaching statistics at INSEAD and I was teaching a statistics class one day talking about the central limit theorem or whatever it was that day and the students enjoyed it they liked the slides you know there were jokes there was this and that but the previous day I had made some sort of financial blunder and I was distracted when I was teaching So I said, I need to stop for a second. I made a big mistake yesterday, it was costly. And I told them the story of what had happened. And the students were usually attentive, they were good. And I I still remember now, I remember halfway through telling them the story of what happened the previous day, all their heads were leaning into me, no one was blinking, the class was absolutely silent. And I realized there's value in what's happening right now, sharing this story rather than trying to persuade them with what's on the slides. And slowly over time, I realized when I talked to someone who took my class three months ago, six months ago, one year ago, they don't remember what was on the slides, they remember those moments, they remember those stories. So can I find a way to do everything through storytelling? And slowly over time, I found a way that works for me doing that. So was it the
1: vulnerability or was it the aspect of story that gripped people?
0: I think it was both, and that's something else, so you hit it. Now I teach a class on decision making, and I deliberately begin it by leveraging both of those truths, that the vulnerability is important and the story is important. In my class on decision making, which is really a class about how do you decide how to live your life, that's the way I focus the course. I teach this to MBA students who are in the peak of their job search. They're 28 years old, they're deciding where they're going to go off in life. And in the next seven or eight weeks, we're going to cover decision making, how they think about that decision. What do they want? What do they want to do? How do they decide between alternatives they're going to be presented with? The first thing I do is I try to make them aware that whatever story you have about yourself, about where you come from, it's going to have an incredibly... Determinate impact on how you decide these career decisions in the next few weeks next seven eight weeks And I tell them my own story. So my own story that I told myself for a long time Was I'm an American redneck. I was born in Baton Rouge, Louisiana in 1973. I went to schools in Baton Rouge, Louisiana during the height of the crack cocaine era My school experience was like a 80s Jodie Foster movie where basically The teachers were just trying to prevent racial violence from happening. Nothing was being learned in the classroom, at least the classrooms I was in. I finished high school. I hadn't done anything. I hadn't taken a chemistry class, no meaningful math class. But my parents expected me to go to university. So long story short, I did the best I could do. Uh, I went to a school called Southeastern Louisiana University. That's because I couldn't get into the good school nearby, Louisiana State University, LSU, which people have heard of, because I didn't have the foreign language requirements, the course requirements. So I went to this first person in my family, went to university, and I could get into the university I went to because there was no admissions policy whatsoever, just if you graduate from high school, you could go there. And I went through, I was a house painter, I cleaned pools, I worked at a pizza place, I did all that, and then finally after six years I finished my undergrad. Through a series of chance events, I ended up doing a PhD in psychology. Oh, well,
1: hold on, hold on. That's a, that's a huge leap. A <laughs> that's a, leap. So, yeah, no, yeah, I like it, it but, but hold hours. on, because you've got me gripped right now, but you don't go from cleaning pools to PhD. So, what happened? What, 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 what clicked in your head that said, uh, there's a different
0: path for me, and, and what happened in between? Uh, it's, I, I, I've had about five or six of these moments, or more, depending on how I break them down uh, i woke up one day and asked myself where is this going this being my life and i, I was enrolled in the school that was very easy to get into i wasn't taking my classes seriously i would go to class i wouldn't do any homework i was getting by one morning i woke up woke up and i realized if if i iterate this out if i keep doing this where is this going and I recall that there was a time in middle school when I was around 12 or 13, I remember a teacher coming up to me when I was acting like an idiot in class. And he said, Neil, why, why are you doing this? You, you have so much promise. Why are you acting like a fool? I woke up in college. I remembered him saying that to me and I realized I'm still acting like a fool. What am I doing? I need to recourse. I need to do something different. This is going in a direction of you know, being overweight, three wives, a lot like what I saw the people around me. And after that moment, I got serious about university. I was able to get a paper published with a professor. I managed to turn that ship around and get into a pretty decent PhD program. I went to Chapel Hill for my PhD. And I'm trying to move this back to NCI, where the question began. I tell this to the students that I have at the beginning. I say, I showed up at INSEAD and I came here in 2007 to the Singapore campus. And on the first day I arrived, I was sitting next to a colleague and she said, what are you going to be teaching? I said, I'm going to be teaching a class on decision making. Oh, that's interesting. I said, what do you teach? She said, I teach PE. And I'm a reasonably fit person, so I thought, I should be teaching PE. I didn't know they taught PE in a business school. I found myself in a business school. I had done a PhD in psychology. And she meant, she saw that I understand. She said, that's private equity. And I said, oh yeah, yeah, I know, but I didn't know. I had no idea what private equity was. And about my first five or six years here, I was incredibly insecure that I didn't belong. I felt like a fraud, a phony. How did I end up here? And what that did was it made me Uh, incredibly ambitious, I worked very, very hard. I wanted to convince the people around me that I belonged here, this guy who went to this redneck hillbilly school in Louisiana that I earned a place at NCID. because my colleagues are from, the guy next door is from Harvard, other people from MIT, and I'm this hillbilly redneck in my own story that I tell myself from Louisiana who went to Southeastern Louisiana University, a school they'd never heard of. So I found myself here not knowing what I was doing, incredibly insecure, with a chip on my shoulder, but incredibly motivated that I was going to show my colleagues I was smart, I belonged here. So I worked very hard for a long time. Uh, the insecurities that I did have manifested themselves in a number of ways, You know, I thought that if someone challenged me, it was because they thought that I didn't belong there, that I didn't have the credentials. I didn't want the students to know where I went to school because then they would see that you know, they paid for something better than some bowser like this teaching them. And over time I realized, actually I'm doing okay, and what I'm doing okay doing is telling stories which is, that was a very normal part of growing up in Louisiana. I would go to hunting camps, we'd go to deer camps. The guys would sit around, we'd sit around the fire and people would tell stories. And slowly over time, I realized that there's this tradition that I was running from. I didn't want people to know that I was a simple redneck from Louisiana, because I'm around all these cultured people from around the world. I'm a monolingual American. I'm around people who speak six, seven, eight languages, went to these fancy schools. And slowly over time, I realized I have this story that I've been telling myself about where I came from, and I thought it was a handicap where I came from. But actually, I see now that it's been pushing me in a useful direction, it's been pushing me to work hard, but I need to bring back some of those tools and some of that culture that I had early on of storytelling. And so I started doing in my classroom what I did when I was a kid, when I went to the deer camp to go hunting, the way I learned about gun safety or how to hunt ducks was by listening to men tell stories around a fire. And somehow now I'm trying to, I've been able to, I think, bring that method, that oral tradition, which the Greeks did, right, into the classroom and try to teach that way. I got a little bit off track. The point of the story was that we have these stories that we tell ourselves, these narratives of where we came from, and they're hugely impactful on how we make decisions. So the question was vulnerability and story, which is more important. When I tell my students who are all type A, super achievers, went to these incredible schools, high GMAT scores, all of this. When I tell them, I'm the professor in front of you, I have all these insecurities. I came with all these insecurities and they made me work very hard and they've been useful, but also they had some cost because they, had, they caused me to have a chip on my shoulder and to misunderstand a lot. That whenever I came to grips with that and liberated myself from this story that I've been telling myself, it really enabled me to see my life more clearly, to see what had been pushing me more clearly, to see where it had been costing me, this story, to see where it added value, and to reinterpret it. And so now my version of you know being this redneck who went to some school that no one ever heard of, which to a lot of people listening might not matter, but in an elite academic environment, when you went to some school that people consider not a very good school or a crappy school, it's something that causes some anxiety for a lot of people, it did for me for sure. Now I'm able to talk about it, I'm, I'm telling this to you right now, and to show how being this simple, uncultured, uneducated redneck uh, influenced me in a negative way, in a positive way, telling it to you now does something very important. There'll be someone listening to this, I know, because I tell this story to people all the time, and there'll be people out there working in Citibank or JP Morgan or wherever they're working who feel that their academic credentials aren't so good, who feel a bit insecure, Who are struggling trying to find their way in that environment and they'll see that there's someone that they're listening to right now who feels the same way and I think one of the greatest things about podcasting which we didn't have 20 years ago was the recognition that there are a lot of people like us in the world right there are a lot of people who don't have the credentials they feel there are a lot of people who feel like phonies and I think if people come to grips with that and they start telling other people their story And all their story is, is their story. It's the way they made sense of their life. I could have made sense of my life in a different way. It's quite arbitrary. But I made sense of it in a very particular way that impacted me. So to answer you again, I think the vulnerability of talking about these things and the story element, which there wasn't a lot of story actually in the way I told it to you. That was sort of a more of a chronological account of what happened, but there was some vulnerability. That's what seemed to really make an impact. In our modern
1: capitalist culture, the idea of strength, impenetrable uh, capabilities, the idea of being strong under all circumstances. It's its its the story that corporate leaders, financial leaders tell themselves. Yet here you are, a professor at one of the best business schools in the world, speaking about um, the importance of vulnerability in a time when people are 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 resistant to the idea, yet it seems so essential. How do you help these young rising stars with all of their capabilities come to terms with that?
0: It turns out to be very, very easy. So I I address that. I say a, a lot of you think that showing vulnerability is a sign of weakness. I just told you my story that, you know, I'm a professor here at NCIT, but I couldn't even gain admittance to this place in the MBA program because I don't meet the language requirements. I I tell them, I I teach statistics, I used to teach statistics, I haven't done it in about five years. I tell them a true story, which is in my first semester of college, this college that you haven't heard of, I took a class called pre-algebra. I don't know what pre-algebra is. (laughs) It must be subtraction. But I had to get my transcripts when i became a pr in singapore and i saw that i had an f in pre-algebra in college and i said now i've taught udj that's our version of statistics i taught that and i taught it reasonably successfully i taught that to people just like you and i failed pre-algebra i'm telling you that right now do you think any less of me i told you that I had this chip on my shoulder because I saw myself as this simple, uncultured, redneck American. I told you that. Do you think less of me? Or do you have a little bit more respect for me now because I was vulnerable with you? And there's always a consensus. I for a long time tied my experiences together in a particular way where I viewed it as you know making me somehow inadequate or phony in the environments that I was in. By ambiguous, I mean that someone else can hear me, for instance, in my own case, recount those same events and see something very different, which is, you know, you you did all of this, you failed pre-algebra in college, but now you're in the same room that we are right now. So you don't need to see it as you were some redneck loser. Rather, there's a very different interpretation, which is, wow, despite all of that, you've made it here. And so I think the value that they get from it is realizing that the interpretation that they assign assigned to their life has been quite arbitrary. That arbitrary interpretation could be pragmatically useful to them. It could be driving them in a way that they endorse at that second order level. Uh, it could also be handicapping them in some way. And there's value in hearing someone else challenge your interpretation, maybe give it a more charitable interpretation, that, an interpretation that... Is pragmatically more useful to you that drives you in a direction that you would want to go in. And I think that's the thing that they can leave with. It's just, you know, my the truth of my life is not set in stone. Rather, it's a way I interpret the things that have happened to me that's open to interpretation. So I'm introduced a bit of stoicism in this. You and I were briefly talking about things, and I mentioned that stoicism was useful. I think one of the more useful things that comes out of Stoicism is just a very simple realization. This is useful in storytelling or any other part of life. And it's captured by the Epictetus remark, man is not troubled by events, but rather the meaning he assigns to them. So that's one of the central tenets of Stoicism. So Stoicism is very popular now. And as soon as you have that realization that, okay, life is subject to interpretation, including how I've made sense of my own life. Can I look for a way of interpreting what's happened to me in a way that's useful? So then what is useful? Let's link this back to decision making now. What do I want? Any decision you make should begin with that question. I said that earlier. What is it that I want? What is the objective? Now what I can ask myself is how can I interpret the way that I've made sense in my life? Because I see it's having an enormous impact on the way I'm making my decisions, my actions each day. How can I interpret what's happened to me in a way that's most likely to enable me to move towards my objective? Can I interpret it in a way that's going to, for instance, be more optimistic, that will give me more hope that I'm going to be able to achieve what I want?
1: So it's, it's, a, it's a, a, a means of reframing, almost to, to by putting a different lens on your life, it then reorients you towards things that are now achievable
0: that perhaps prior were not reframing is a a modern way of putting the exact same idea, correct.
1: If this episode so far hasn't left you feeling that Neil is no average B-school professor, then stay tuned. We'll be back in a moment. This is Steve Stein, and you're listening to Inside Asia. I'm at the home of Neil Bearden, professor at the Singapore campus of the prestigious INSEAD School of Business. We've been talking about how the stories we create help shape our lives. For Neil's students, it's a precursor to entering the world and a means of framing one's core values, dreams, and expectations. In the second part of our conversation, I asked Neil to explain how and why stories can be a more effective means of communication as opposed to the simple relay of key facts. Beyond this, why have we as humans found such meaning and utility in the telling and receiving of stories? Let's talk about story writ large, uh, the, the, the tradition of storytelling, uh, you touched on it just a little bit, but, but what, how, how are we doing as a, as a modern society in applying um, some of the methodology or the methods of storytelling in order to evoke a better, a better shift in the world? Or, or, or is it something that's worthy of re-exploration?
0: Can, can I zoom down to a more boring level for a moment? You can do whatever you want. Okay. Storytelling is this enormous big concept that we have. It's, it's not easy or perhaps it's very easy to define what it means. Let me make a distinction that I think is useful. I'm going to put it into the, the modern workplace for a moment, this conversation. I think one way that we can do better with one another is by thinking about communicating generally with one another using storytelling. What do I mean? Here's the distinction. One way of communicating that you see in most meetings, so some people will listen to this and they will go to a meeting an hour from now. Some people just left a meeting. Probably the way information was communicated in that meeting is in a propositional form here is an assertion and after I make this assertion the total addressable market in Ethiopia is three million dollars growth next quarter is going to be 18 percent someone asserts a proposition and then they try to provide evidence that will lead you to assign the truth value to that proposition that they want you to assign to it it's true that the total addressable market in Ethiopia is three million dollars they'll show you some data now In the propositional way of communicating, where I assert something that has a truth value, it's true or false that the total addressable market is $3 million. In doing that, um, I'm arguing with your logical brain. I'm trying to persuade you. Storytelling is quite different. What do I do when I'm telling stories? When I'm storytelling, in the way I think about it, I'm communicating not with your logical brain, but in a sense, just to use a metaphor, I'm trying to give you a mental movie. So when I communicate to you in a storytelling format, what I want you to do is I want you to get some kind of visual in your mind so that you get some sort of inner experience. I don't want to argue with you, I want to show you. So showing versus telling, that distinction. I think in the workplace, and life, if we worked much more on that, communicating by showing rather than telling, I think life would be more interesting, I think we'd be more successful, we'd be more persuasive. Um, But that's quite uncommon in the workplace. It's become this, I think, adversarial environment where I need to convince you of the truth of my claims. And and it's true that we should do that in many cases. But I think we would be better off being a little bit more interesting to one another by trying to show one another. But if
1: you have limited time, you have KPIs, you have certain financial objectives on behalf of your organization, you need to ensure a drive, a decision on Ethiopia, in your case, will story allow you to, to generate the result required in order to advance the cause?
0: Maybe, maybe not. So I, I'm certainly not making any sort of ridiculous claim that you should always go in and tell stories, which many people, when they hear that, they equate that with, let me go in and BS people. I'm certainly not making any claim like that. That would be ridiculous. Um, let, me ask, let me address your question by answering you a different question which is when someone goes in and presents that case about Ethiopia and the total addressable market, what are some objectives the presenter should have in mind? Well, one is I wanna persuade you of my case. I have some case in mind, I wanna persuade you of it. And that can be useful, uh, but I'm only going to do that if you listen to me, right? If you're not listening, if I'm boring you, if you tune out and you start checking your messages because I'm so incredibly boring, you're not gonna hear what I'm saying, and there's no reason that we even need to be in the same room together. So one consequence of bringing in a bit of story into our communication is it becomes a bit more interesting. It draws people in. So if I can draw you in with a little bit of story, the total addressable market in Ethiopia, we believe is $3 million, and it's represented by this farmer I talked to last week who right now is checking the weather on his phone each day. He's getting SMS, and so he's able to grow coffee beans right now in a much more effective way because he's getting that but the challenge that he's having is the mobile phone plan is so incredibly expensive that he would like to do that he would like to scale it and get his other employees to be able to access the same information but he can't afford the mobile phones that they need to get it i talked to him i asked him what we should do and i'm I'm just making this up i never talked to an ethiopian farmer but you start telling the people listening that and they'll, they'll start to realize, okay, there is some opportunity for us to go in and give free mobile phones to these Ethiopian coffee farmers because then they will be able to communicate with one another. That will generate greater coffee yield for them. From that, they will then start putting money in the bank, and we'll get the banks to help us pay for these mobile phones. Is it because it, that has
1: personalized the experience or because it's the storytelling uh aspects of this that leave, that plant themselves in the brain in a way that
0: data or statistics doesn't. It's that my, my hope is when I was just making that up, I, did, I was just rambling, making up things, improvising, is that you saw some Ethiopian farmer, you know, growing coffee, mm-hmm. and you imagined the fellows he's working with who don't have phones and their challenges, that you experience something in your mind and you realize this is real. This is not a number, $3 million, but that $3 million comes from someone. It comes from that guy, and it comes these guys from these guys who don't have phones. And there are real people there who need this. And now I experienced it. I saw it. Visualization. Visually, yeah. Mm-hmm. So the, the main distinction between the propositional way of communicating and storytelling is that what storytelling does is it involves the transfer of imagery. As I was telling you about the Ethiopian farmer, I'm picturing some guy in my mind, and I want you, Steve, to have some picture like that in your mind when you hear it. And if I do that, I've achieved my objective. You had some inner experience, and so you're going to remember it. So I'm drinking Ethiopian coffee right now. Uh, it makes, tomorrow, when I drink this coffee again, it's going to make me think of the guy with the mobile phone and the weather, and I wonder if this coffee tastes funny because he didn't have access to the phone that I would like him to have. And I'm going to remember that now in a way that's very different from if me just presenting to you that propositional format of some numbers.
1: You know, it's, it's in, this, in these times where data is constantly coming up as the new oil, uh, the the, the thing that we all should be uh, vesting in in order to generate the insights, in order to be able to make better uh, business decisions. It's fascinating to hear you talk about the potential for story, um, as, as, and maybe they, they complement one another, maybe it's not one or the other, but I find it to be a really interesting and thoughtful approach to how you could shift the way people think about things, but also it's antithetical to what a lot of organizations are looking for or anticipating.
0: Um, it's, it's antithetical, I think, because uh, of a mistaken belief. I think it's only antithetical because people think that they should be doing things in a particular way they think that they should be giving numbers, and they should be giving numbers, but a lot of people think that they should be giving numbers exclusively, and they miss a higher order objective that they should have, which is, you know, presenting all of that, it doesn't mean anything unless the people hear it, unless they're impacted by the numbers. If I think I need to present statistics to you, and that the game that we play in any sort of interaction, any sort of meeting, is arguing over whether that number is correct, and we get distracted by doing that, um, we could there could be enormous opportunity costs because I don't need to argue with you over whether it's actually 19% or 21% in many cases often what I need to do is I need to convince you that there is an opportunity here and it doesn't matter if it's 18% or if it's 24% I need you to realize that there's an opportunity and so there might be cases where the way of presenting could be much better aligned with that objective of making you realize that there's a real problem by communicating in a different format are you saying that we are neurologically predisposed to grab hold
1: and process story better than data
0: i don't want to make any strong epistemological claim about that so it's my observation that it's true mm. that just just look if if you go into a meeting and someone starts telling a story, people lean in and they stop talking. When someone is showing slides with a propositional format, a lot of people are distracted on their phone. You sit down, you say, let me tell you a story, and you notice that people will perk up, they will look at you in a different way. So there is definitely a, and just look at the way we consumed information for the longest time. It was not on PowerPoint slides for a long time. uh, People sat around fires and people told stories. For a long time, there was no internet, there was no TV, there was no radio. People sat around and they told stories. Uh, I'm not making any sense right now with this. I don't know where it's going. but. Uh, it's the device, the devices we used
1: historically through thousands of years of storytelling and, and through all cultures, across all domains, the, the great monomyth, the idea of, of, of you know, when when a, when a society was trying to embed the importance of respect and love for the forest, they would tell stories about the forest in order to for young people to somehow feel like I understand there's almost a, an element of mysticism that revolves in those, in those stories. So my level of respect uh, has to be at a certain level in order for me to be effective when going into the forest. These types of things th- then embed themselves and a repeated generation after generation around campfire after campfire. And I, I agree with you. I think the only thing we have right now are movies, books, you know, creative endeavors. I mean, e- even some interesting YouTube videos are starting to emancipate us from, from you know, maybe the rigid, straightforward bits and bytes, sound bites that we get and have been getting for 25, 30 years. So I, I, I'm hearing you say, and, and, and apologies if I'm trying to put words in your mouth, that we're arriving at a point where it maybe it's time to re-explore a story as that wonderful device that it actually has and always should be um, in order to counter some of the rote insights and information that's being thrown at us day in, day out through social media.
0: I'm going to answer your question by telling you a story this morning. As as I would expect. (laughs) I, I spent a lot of my time in classrooms with 28 year olds who all have smartphones and who are looking at social media. And this morning I dropped Quinn, my daughter off in a classroom full of two year olds. I walked her into the classroom. I put her bag in the cubby hole. One of the students in the class, Julian said, read a book. Often when I drop her off, I read books. And off, one of the favorite books that they have that they, they like me to read is a book called Pow pout, pout Fish. Do you know pow pout, pout Fish? I don't know it. So, I went in this, I didn't read pow pow Fish this morning, last time I went in, I read pow pout, pout Fish. It's a wonderful little story about a fish called pow pout, pout Fish, at least early on in the book he's called pow pout, pout Fish, who has pouty cheeks, doesn't look very happy, and it has a hook in it. I'm a pow pow Fish with a pow pow face for spreading through r- 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 all over the place. It sounds like
1: a little rap thing happening there. It's a little
0: rapping. So he goes along and he meets these other fish who are, you know, keep asking him what's wrong. Along comes a clam and a silent silver shimmer. And I read this to the children. And when I read to them, I have these two-year-olds who don't have smartphones, who don't have Facebook accounts, who are not looking at Instagram. And there's complete rapt attention for as long as I will share a story with them. Two-year-olds. Um, and so, so they're, they're, who aren't known for their long attention spans. No, but you, yeah. you, start, you yeah. start with story with them and they lean in and they love it and they smile and they experience it in their yeah. own two-year-old way and they love it. So is it hardwired? I don't know. Are we distracted by social media? I think so. I don't have good evidence for that outside of comparing what happens when I'm in front of older people with smartphones and young children who don't have smartphones. And I see that the, the power of story, especially when you're not distracted, it's a way to be together, to be mindful. You and I were talking about being mindful. Everyone is incredibly present in that situation when a story is being told.
1: And Neil, doesn't it break your heart when you see what's happening now with teenagers and the texting and these, these just this, the, the cutting and the mutilation of language in so many different ways? I know it's utilitarian and I know it gets the job done or communicates the most base thing that needs to be communicated, but it feels to me like the loss of poetry in language is actually something which is going to
0: impose itself on the way we function in the world if we don't get this right. I think so, and I think the, the biggest cost, and this is where you and I both sound like really old guys when we start saying, you know, in the good old days, mm-hmm. you and I are standing here in my living room, you're pointing a microphone at me, you have headphones on, it's a very strange experience in a sense. If you want mm-hmm. to stand here for the next 12 hours, having the conversation that we've been having since the microphone was out and before it was out, I will stand here for 12 hours because you're interesting, I love this, this is absolutely wonderful. I haven't looked at my phone once, you haven't looked at your phone once, and we're doing something that you and I both did when we were kids, right? We sat down with our friends and we talked and we weren't distracted. And that's, that's being lost somehow. Conversation. Well, that's and I, that's exactly where I wanted to
1: go. So thank you for the segue. Conversation. Conversation in a variety of settings. I mean, the reason I started this podcast two years ago was because I felt that what really people wanted was to be party to conversation. And the art of conversation was being lost. And sometimes just to listen and absorb yourself in that conversation, like those radio hours with Roosevelt sitting and explaining, you know, fireside chat kind of stuff. It, it, was, it was falling by the wayside. The salon, just a gathering because we could have a good conversation, not because I need to know something I need to leave and tell my boss tomorrow what I learned. That's fine and well and good, but I, I'm really fascinated by this whole thing. Almost so much so that part of what I'm doing now is actually bringing conversations into boardrooms, curating discussions for board members so that they can absorb, ask, engage, instead of being told in the course of a three-hour meeting, this is what we need to do and this is how we need to do it because the the PowerPoint slides tell us. Now, I don't know if that's going to yield, but when I present this idea to people and corporations, they almost fall over themselves and say, how, when, and where can we do this? Because they know in their hearts and minds that without conversation,
0: they can't advance the cause. I don't know how you're structuring that. If, if I could offer any input on it, I think it's a beautiful idea, it's a wonderful idea. A lot of it is, what is, what is that environment like also when those conversations are taking place? So it's one thing, let's, let's enable some conversations. Another thing it would be beautiful, wonderful for people to experience, is what it feels like to have this conversation that you and I have been having for an hour, where I don't even—oh, you do have a phone, but I haven't—I haven't seen you touch your phone ever. You haven't seen me touch my phone. Is to say, let let's move this back to 1982. Mm. We're gonna have a conversation. I'm just making up a number. So, so you're
1: referring to the setting, the setting. The setting, yeah.
0: So, I—no one have phones. Let's sit and let's have a conversation. Not let's have a conversation in between our normal distraction while we go check our email, but let's, let's feel what it feels like to be present the way you and I have been present. We're staying, we've been staring at each other lovingly now for the past hour. You're enjoying this, I'm enjoying this. And we wouldn't be able to do that if we were distracted, if we were trying to in parallel process the next meeting we need to go to, the email that we need to reply to. This
1: is making space. It's it's almost like what we were discussing earlier on on, on, on a, a meditative practice, where you find time to just clear, set uh, an an intention, and then somehow move into your day with more more purpose, if you will. And I think some ways you're right. We're overwhelmed with all the activities and all the distractions and all the different mediums. And and conversation, just like meditation, is a way of breaking that. It's going back into the essence of who we are as two human beings, sharing ideas and thoughts and insights in a way which I know will embed themselves in me as I hope they do in you different than receiving a PowerPoint slide or getting a quick text or knowing from somebody that I'm gonna get fed this PowerPoint uh, rundown in the next 15 minutes and can they get back to them in 20, right? This is the way we live our lives and it's not effective. It's not advancing us. It's not getting us to the position where we can actually exchange ideas in a meaningful way. I just ranted. I didn't ask the question, was it? That wasn't a question. That was a rant. But I just, I just yeah. But I, I feel this, and I, I feel that, and that, that you do too. I think there's shared experience here. But I guess the ultimate question is, what do we do about it? And if, if we feel this strongly, there must be something to it because uh, you know we're living our lives and we're observing and we are observant. But but what do we do? What, what, what is? How do we get people to break and understand the importance of this? Uh, for their own psychological well-being, but also because the world is, 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 needs to have a different kind of me- means of engagement in order to get across the important subjects.
0: I think we, we use stories to remind ourselves of what we want. So I'm going to try to piece together some things that I said, show that it's coherent. What should we always ask? So this is me being the decision-making guy for a second. We should always ask, what's the objective? So I can't answer your question without saying what the objective should be for us. If we say that the objective is in some vague sense, but it must be true, a well-lived life, we have to ask ourselves what what would a well-lived life look like? Uh, Yesterday was Labor Day. We went to the National Gallery, my wife, my daughter, myself, and one of the memories that stands out to me is, you know, it's very easy to know how I want to live my life when I see how I don't want to live my life. At the end of going through and seeing a number of things, we got to what my daughter calls magnets. There's a little area with magnets where she can move magnets along on a wall, and she loves it. She gets so happy. She puts the yellow one with the blue one. And I saw there was a little boy next to her, and our whole family is moving these magnets. She's loving it, and there's a little boy and then I wondered who the little boy next to her belonged to. I looked over and I saw that dad was there. He had the day off for Labor Day and he was playing backgammon on his phone while his kid was moving the magnets. And just in an instance, I realized, I'm very happy that I'm moving these magnets. I will never regret that I'm standing here moving these magnets. I would regret profoundly waking up in 20 years, realizing that, you know, that. that Probably that guy's one day off, probably works at some bank, and he got the day off for Labor Day. On it, while this kid is moving the magnets, he's looking at backgammon. So one useful thing is to share stories about things that we see, about seeing a guy at the yeah. museum on Labor Day, the one day a week he gets to spend with his son, probably because he's probably working investment banking 16 hours a day, and he's there looking at backgammon. So I tell that story, hopefully someone will hear that, and when he goes, she goes to the museum with her daughter, next week, when she starts to pull her phone out to look at WhatsApp or to do whatever it is, she might put it back and realize, what do I want? What's the objective? I want to be present with my child and have a wonderful experience.
1: Which is an important objective of storytelling. They must resonate. So if they don't resonate, the story actually isn't effective. The story could be self-serving or the story could be uh, esoteric. But but a story, in order to be effective, has to be something that people can relate to.
0: Yes. So. Let's talk about story for a second and to think about how to tell a story. There are three sort of key players in any storytelling. There's the storyteller. Okay, so that's you when you're telling a story. There's your audience. That's who's ever listening to you. And then there's the story. And we can draw these out if we're in a classroom as a triangle. And the triangle gives rise to three questions. So you, the storyteller in the story, what's the question? Why is this story meaningful to me? I just told you some boring anecdote, not really a story, because there wasn't so much a beginning, a middle, and an end. It was more or less an anecdote, but we can still use it, of the guy playing backgammon on his day off with his kid at the National Museum near the magnets. Why is that story important to me, the storyteller? It's important to me because it showed me what I don't want to be doing in those precious moments. His kid was having a great time. His kid would have had a better time, I think, if dad had been there engaged with him moving those magnets. That's why that's important to me. Now what about the relationship between the audience and the story? I suppose that there are some people out there uh, who have children. There are some people who have children who regret that they were doing the equivalent of playing backgammon when the kid was growing up. There are other people with children right now who are trying to figure out how to get it right. There are some people who have children and they don't look at their phone and they'll hear that and they'll be grateful that they don't look at their phone with their kids and they will think about the significance of being present, being mindful, being engaged with their children when they hear that story. That's why I think the story will be important. The third link is what is the relationship between the storyteller and the audience. And that's always a challenge, which is when you're telling a story, you know, who am I actually talking to? So when I use that example of the museum with my daughter, the intended audience for that is especially people with children. There will be some people out there who have children. I have a two-year-old daughter. Uh, who, when they hear that story, they will identify with it. There will be another 25-year-old guy who's never thought of children, and my boring remark about going to the museum and magnets will mean nothing to that guy. And that's okay when I'm using that as a story, because I'm targeting the dad out there like me, who I don't want him to wake up 20 years from now and realize, you know, I wish I had spent a lot more time with my kid. I wish I had been more present. I'm targeting that guy when I tell the story. And why am I targeting that guy? Because I meet that guy a lot. Uh, I teach executives frequently, I talk to them, children come up, the most common remark I hear when I sit down and have a meaningful conversation is, I really wish I had spent more time with my children. That usually comes up when I tell them about pow-pow fish and that I read to my daughter's class this morning. The standard remark that I get is I wish I had done more stuff like that. So when I tell those kinds of stories, when I mention pow-pow fish, when I mention the museum, I'm talking to that group because of, you know a very salient part of who I am right now, probably the most salient part to me right now. It came up when we were talking about saying the claim is I'm a father. That means more to me than anything else. So know your audience, know who you're talking to. Be comfortable with the fact that you're going to exclude some people I anytime mean, you There'll be some people who don't care about your story, who think it's boring, who think it's lame, who think it's terrible, who think it's irrelevant. So if you, if you have those three pieces in place, it really helps you direct which stories you're gonna tell, how you're gonna tell them. So, so wherever
1: you are, whoever you are, Think stories, tell stories, share stories, and in some ways in telling that story, don't have any specific target intention, but just speak from the heart and create an engagement or way of connecting with people that, that ultimately leave them thinking and perhaps even acting differently as a result.
0: Absolutely. Yeah.
1: Neil, we could truly stand here all day. I've so enjoyed this. There's so much more I want to talk to you about. So we will return, but I just want to thank you for the time you've given me today. Thank you very much. That was my conversation with INSEAD Professor of Decision Science, Neil Bearden, sharing his views on the art of storytelling and why it is so essential to lean into story in the age of science. My discussion with Neil left me with a few thoughts. So here it is. In this week's Asia Insider Minute, I reflect on the exchange and pose a few questions of my own. Story is humanity's lifeblood. If that statement strikes you as too grandiose, consider for a moment that our very existence might be attributed to our ability to embrace and share story. Yuval Noah Harari, the celebrated author of the book Sapiens, goes so far as to say, and I quote, without an ability to compose fiction, Neanderthals were unable to cooperate effectively in large numbers, nor could they adapt their social behavior to rapidly changing challenges. That single ability, says Harari, allowed the Homo sapiens to flourish and the Neanderthal to flounder. Flash forward, and today there's no shortage of story. We live in a whirlpool of competing political narratives, product advertising, and digital memes. It's a storytelling supermarket, yet something is amiss. As Neil points out, stories are only as good as their underlying authenticity. And in this era of rampant self-promotion and gilded lifestyle marketing, it's hard to break through the entertainment facade to discover what's true and meaningful. I would argue that our stories have diminished through the years, both in style and substance. A daily bombardment of high-paced imagery and hyperbole have neutered and turned flabby the human imagination. In the storytelling tradition of yore, it was beholden on us, the listener, to absorb the words and translate the tale in images of our own making. Great stories are didactic. They entertain while they inform. This dual purpose formed the cultural backbone of communities, societies, and nations. Where are today's storytellers? Hollywood has assumed the role to some degree, but it too is bowed to the pressures of commerce. Box office receipts are the film industry's litmus test. Spoon feed the masses and take profits. Moral lessons and search for meaning be damned. If ever a time existed for big and meaningful narratives, this is it. Political disillusionment, global terrorism, climate change, and power and peril of artificial intelligence. It's a storyteller's palette. Stories well told can inspire new ideas, innovation, and even change. Somewhere along the way, technology usurps story as the vanguard of human preservation. Show me a problem that can't be solved by science or technology, went the mantra. But here we are half a century in, and while technology is wowed and impressed, has it preserved human consciousness or disrupted it? This is a call for a return to the storytelling tradition. Perhaps if partnered with technology, we could learn to preserve the world rather than driving to dominate it. What's your take on storytelling? Do you incorporate it in your own life or profession? Can a focus on great narratives move us to a higher place? We want to know what you think. Review this podcast on iTunes, contact us on Facebook, Twitter, or LinkedIn, start a dialogue, or just tell a story. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Inside Asia. We want you to keep listening. If you haven't done so already, please do subscribe by visiting iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. Search for Inside Asia, click the subscribe button, and start downloading. We have over 95 episodes on subjects of every kind, conversations with some of the sharpest and most well-informed insiders in Asia. Is there a topic we haven't covered? Send us a note or contact us at www.insideasiapodcast.com. Until next time, this is Steve Stein saying, coming from the outside on Inside Asia.